0: tell me one thing, Burke. You're going out there to destroy them, right? Not to study, not to bring back, but to wipe them out. It's just one of those things managed to wipe out my entire crew in less than 24 hours. And if the colonists have found that ship, then there's no telling how many of them have been
1: exposed. Do you understand? I ain't much for begging. Nobody ever gave me nothing. So I say, fuck that thing. Welcome to Perfect Organism, the Alien Saga Podcast. I am your host, J.M. Prater, and I am joined by host Ryan Zaid and What's Patrick Green. Yeah. This is episode 77, and this has been a while since all three of us has, have been back together. We've been working on a bunch of stuff, Proximity being one of them, that we just finally released mm-hmm. chapter two together, along with chapter one. Um, and yeah, its it's been a while, guys.
2: Yeah, it's good to be back. Um, I feel like, uh, yeah, it's mostly been... um, I think most of the episodes lately have been more focused on, uh, I think, Shoulder of Orion while you guys have done the proximity stuff. Um, But, yeah, now that's out. The whole thing's out. So that's a little piece of news. Um, It's totally free for you to download and listen to. But, uh, yeah, the full proximity audio drama is uh is there for you and it's awesome and um Jamie and Patrick put in a ton of time and effort and love into it and it shows it's just uh it's fantastic so um, and, uh, and if you uh, want if you I'll-
0: want to listen to it and you, and you for whatever reason, don't see it in your podcast feed, which doesn't make any sense because you're literally listening to a podcast right now, but let's say you don't, <laughs> or you're listening at <laughs> some other apparatus, if you mm-hmm. just go to bit.ly slash Hadley's Hope, that's mm-hmm. B-I-T dot L-Y slash Hadley's Hope, you'll go right to our main page for it, and that has, like, a listing of all the different platforms you can listen to it on, yeah. it's got a little, a little bit of background information, press release kind of stuff, um, some graphics. So if you want to share it with friends or anything just send them you know bitly mm-hmm.
2: Yeah. Yeah. Um, and then uh, I also wanted to mention we have a new patron, a sustaining donor, Seth Holbrook. Seth, well, what? thank you. Yep. Seth thank you so much for your patronage. Um, we we'll are definitely have you on in uh, on a future episode and um we're just so thankful to you and all, all the other patrons that we have to help kind of help us out, keep things going. Um, you know, we, we do this on our own time. We don't uh, make any money or anything off it. This is just um, out of love, and we're just so thankful that people want to help contribute and, um, you know, and help us to kind of pay for certain, you know, hosting fees, things like that. That just that helps out a lot, so we re- we're really appreciative of it, so... Yeah, thanks, Seth. So. Yeah,
0: thank thank you so much, Seth. That is thank awesome. you. Yep. It,
2: it really means like just so so much to us. Um, another piece of news that uh, we want to talk about a little bit is uh, Ridley Scott was just recently um, awarded a uh, BAFTA Fellowship, uh, and uh, that's just the highest honor you can get. Um, and really, it's I I know I've. I've kind of ripped on Ridley Scott, um, probably too often on the show, and just at least for more recent stuff he's done. But honestly, his his uh, his resume is top notch. Um, compared to I mean, you compare him to just about anyone in the film industry over the last four decades. I mean, he's right there at the top. Um, and uh, yeah, I think honestly, it's a really well deserved award for him. Um, and you know, I, I could see him, you know, getting other other kind of lifetime achievement type of awards in the future. Um, but what do you guys think of that? You heard that they got that fellowship.
1: I think it's uh, fantastic, actually. I mean, again, for his body of work, really. Um, despite what we our opinions on the work that he's produced uh, of late, uh, he has made some of history's greatest films. I mean, again, arguably one of the greatest sci-fi films. Two of the greatest sci-fi films ever made, Alien and... Blade Alien Runner. Covenant? Um, <laughs> and, and arguably one of the worst sci-fi films ever made, Alien Covenant and Prometheus. Um, <laughs> uh, um But no, um, but yeah, I, I just, I do, I think it's great. I think he has his, his diversity uh, in film. I mean, he's made everything from sequels to The Silence of the Lambs to... The Kingdom of Heaven, to Black Rain, to Thelma and Louise, um, I mean, to Black Hawk Down, which is an amazing film. Um,
2: Gladiator. Gladiator,
1: yeah. yeah, He's just really, really uh, produced some solid, solid work. Um, We won't talk about his shit films. Um, (laughs) (laughs) um, But, uh, yeah, yeah, he really he had I, an
0: incredible career
1: yeah he really has I mean he's unrivaled he is really unrivaled he he put out a lot of great work um, for a long 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 time and I really only truly respect and whether or not he views his films the way we do or he under or his process for creation is our process for understanding what he's creating I think that those are different things that notwithstanding he's a leader in his field I mean he 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 set the bar for science fiction and, uh, the only one who's really, I mean, there's very few people who have met that bar. The only people that I can think of right offhand are Christopher Nolan and Denny Villeneuve. So
2: mm-hmm. Steven Spielberg, I think has maybe a more illustrious career. Um, but, uh, but yeah, I mean, um, it's just, uh, yeah, his, I mean, he's right up there with, yeah, the best. And, uh, yeah, I think when all said and done, I think Nolan and Villeneuve will have uh careers that, you know, kind of rival um what Scott has done. But uh but yeah, it's just it's just been an amazing amazing run for him. Um and he's still still doing this at the age of I don't know, what was he now? 80? 80? 82, 82. Eighty? Eighty 82. two.
1: Eighty, he's just eighty. He's just eighty.
0: He's uh-huh. so hundred and eighty yeah. years he's three hundred <laughs> years old. <laughs> yeah. It's incredible. I, I mean this is a guy who like completely changed what we think a sci-fi picture can be you know in a lot of ways i mean between between alien and blade runner he basically set the groundwork for future serious or like hard sci-fi in a lot of ways at least in the in the commercial sphere and um you know you look at like how varied his output has been and i don't mean in terms of quality because i i mean i think that the majority of his films have been truly amazing, and there's been some flops in there, but but I think overall he's been really good. But when I say, you know, varied output, I mean, in terms of, like, just the aesthetic content and storytelling content and even time, like, the same guy that did Thelma and Louise did Gladiator, like, 12 years later, I mean, mm-hmm. that's just amazing, you know? Very different stories, but they all have at their core an incredibly strong flair for visual storytelling that I think is his hallmark and I think will always be his hallmark. And you see that as early as The Duelists and his commercial work Mm -hmm. Um, and and a real flair for following his vision wherever it goes, for better or for worse, and for Mm -hmm. seeing things through so that they feel representative to him of what he wanted to, to get out of it. Um, and you know, and, and, and you have to respect that because we live in a world that really does not reward that very often. You know, like we want movies to be broadly palatable and to make a lot of sense and to be very marketable. And he's not somebody who has really ever done that. His movies have almost always been a little bit different Mm -hmm. and sometimes they've really worked and sometimes they haven't worked, but they've always been pretty brave and audacious. And I think that when you couple his audacity with his flair for visual narrative storytelling, and his incredible uh, prodigious output, mm-hmm. I think you have a guy who really deserves this sort of achievement award. And you also have to factor into that that his production company, you know, Scott Free and the, all these other companies that he's affiliated with, are also just pumping out tons of content on TV and elsewhere as well. Mm-hmm. So he's somebody who has really shaped um, a very large part of the modern media landscape, and, and I think it's it's couldn't go to a more deserving person.
2: Yeah.
1: And what I actually still really appreciate about Ridley Scott and respect is that he jumps into a film and for a lot of these directors, uh, particularly people like Spielberg and J.J. Um, Abrams, even though he's in, a different, he's in a different league, but he's similar and there are people similar to that uh, Ridley Scott gets his hands dirty Whereas with people like Spielberg, it's kind of this machine that's running, and it's running, and it's just waiting for him to jump in it, and then he jumps in it and makes a film. Whereas with Scott, he's like, well, what are we going to do? Let's see. Let's, let's throw out some ideas. Scott's very kind of guerrilla filmmaker in some ways. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, for as old as he is, as long as his career is, that's, that's admirable. You know whether or not we like or agree or whatever about what the films that he makes, he continues to make them. He continues to be interested in making films, and uh, I can only applaud that.
0: And also, just like his his auteur approach to commercial filmmaking, I think is really is really cool. Like the way that he specifically sacrificed rehearsal time in favor of getting as many takes of something as possible. And a lot of films, like in Blade Runner, you know, like we've read in um, you know Future Noir, for example, there were shots that had twenty seven different takes. Um, you know, because he was just trying to get the exact vision out of it that he wanted to find. And, um, and I think that that's, that's really, that's, you know, crazy gorilla rock star filmmaking that, you know, we don't see too often. And I, and mm-hmm. I think that he's just a wonderful, quirky and um, amazing presence in in film. And I'm glad that he's chased his muse even though it's taken him to some places that we don't all necessarily agree with. So, totally.
1: And, you know, really, my hope is for Ridley Scott and his legacy, uh, as we kind of move on, w- we don't know whether we're getting another Alien film by Ridley Scott or whatever. We don't really know the future of the Alien series right now. Um, and as we dive into Alien 3 and its script, uh, my hope is that someone takes up the mantle um, and if if there's another director that comes in and he maybe he's in a producing role for the next Alien film that it's someone who really honors what he did with Alien and uh, knows what made that film successful and uh, we see a film that is feels like something Ridley Scott would do back when he made Alien yet is also incredibly different so mm.
0: which is a pretty high order you know yeah. <laughs> it's pretty tough so, uh, so I guess we should move on to the bulk of the episode unless you guys have any more news you wanted to touch on Let's uh, go. No, that's
2: all I had.
1: Yeah.
0: Let's do it! <laughs> so basically, this episode is a coming home of sorts, because we've been doing this very long um, Alien 3 series, and we are nearing the end of it. We're There, there are um, a couple more episodes, including one very special interview we're hoping to get that um, will be coming out. But, you know, we basically, la- halfway through last year, shortly after I came on the team, you know, we decided... Let's really take this in-depth investigation into Alien 3 and really contribute something to the fan um, knowledge base. You know, like, really try to do some studies and some, like, long-form discussions, get some interviews, meet some interesting people. And it's been this crazy ride that's been going on for, like, you know, seven or eight months now. And um, some of the most uh, discussed or well-received episodes that we've put out since that have been these um, episodes on the script history of Alien 3, because it's so famously convoluted. Um, I remember back in I think it was October, um Jamie, you and I had a, a sort of a big round table kickoff where we talked about all you know the whole history of, of all of the different scripts. And I think Ryan, you were on that too. Um and then you know we each had our own individual ones, and so um we're gonna take this opportunity tonight to go through the trajectory of how we got here very briefly, and then to actually take out the Giler and Hill Fincher script that we actually got. Um, You know, in multiple versions between the theatrical cut and the assembly cut, and discuss some of our favorite things from it, some of the things that we noticed in the script that translated differently to the screen, and and to sort of take a moment and appreciate the crazy journey that this script went on, because it's not like somebody sat down in a room—it's not like Michael Green and Hampton Fancher sat down in a room and wrote this thing, you know, over the span of a month— in, in ideal artistic conditions, this was something that was yeah. wrenched out of the earth by, and that like somehow survived <laughs> into this crazy, beautiful final form that many of us really love.
2: Or so,
1: it was and, just uh, a mess, really. I mean, it was a mess. All of it was a mess. And they ended right. up creating something that that was pretty unbelievable. That they created, right,
0: it. Right, even right. based
1: off like you were talking about, or we were talking about, kind of offline earlier. Uh, even based off reading it, it seemed like you said it seemed like a mess.
0: It's it's hard to read. It's gen- and and not because it's like emotional. I mean, although I guess it is. It's hard. It's just physically hard to read because it's so it's so messy. But we'll get into that. Um, before we do, let's just take a minute and go through just sort of sum up what we've talked about so far. So we know that the first guy who was really attached to this back in eighty seven. Was William Gibson the cyberpunk author, and and Ryan mm-hmm. has a great episode about this that he put out. And um, in the midst of writing it, there was a writer strike, and um, things already started kind of falling apart. Rennie Harlan was brought on, and um, Rennie Harlan decided that he was going to have the aliens invade Earth, and he had this kind of crazy, you know, Gibson had this like this attack, this sort of uh, quasi-socialist story, and then Rennie Harlan had this like sort of. Um, like Grease Lightning meets Aliens meets Transformers story going on. Mm-hmm. And then, and then um, so then that was scrapped. And then we come up to Eric Red, uh, who had done a bunch of work in horror films. And he worked for like two months in 1989 and got that script made. Um, and then that was, that was, completely ditched and then David Toohey who I think was Jamie's uh, script episode yep. was brought on and made this um, prison thing right? that, that was the prison script right?
1: Yeah it was more certainly more of a formalized prison setting for sure
0: Yeah that was a prison planet yeah so so Tui's David Toohey does his guy,
2: Right? Yeah Right yeah, right, okay. exactly yeah.
0: yeah he's actually he's done a lot of stuff like I think he did a Lethal Weapon movie too in there at some point Oh well, okay Um yeah. Uh, but, oh, no, no, it was Die Hard. At Die Hard. You know what? I'm going to just type his name and make Die sure Art I'm not there. Right... Oh, no, never mind. He didn't. He definitely did, definitely did not do a Die Hard movie. Oh. <laughs> 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 well, one of the other guys did. I remember talking about that. Anyway, the point being, this thing went through so many versions, and then it got to Vincent Ward, which is, I did this kind of epic episode about that, um, and that was this very hectic time Where it became this sort of fever dream of these monks on this, you know, this Luddite um, wooden, uh, you know, wood paneled planet, which I think was just one of the greatest unfilmed scripts of all time. And, you know, I've talked about that at length, but that's just amazing and also extremely ambitious in the midst of this whole process of these things being constantly... Um, you know, uh, ejected. And so I don't think Fox was in a place where they could really make it happen. And people were already working on sets for that. And then all of a sudden it was abandoned. And then they got Fincher. And in the midst of all this, Walter Hill and David Geiler, who were producers on this thing, although they're also filmmakers, um, decided <laughs> to start cutting and pasting things and trying to come up with a script based on the one that Ward and Fasano had done. And they hired this guy, Larry Ferguson, to come in and do a script doctor treatment. And Larry Ferguson, kind of according to Sigourney Weaver at least, ruined Ripley's dialogue. That's where the gym teacher comment came from. Um, and so all of a sudden they had this Frankenstein script with this like gym teacher Ripley character. Um, and they were panicking. And this is like right, – right now we're like in 1990. We're like in in shooting range here. 1991 probably, almost at this point. Um, and they uh, – so then they, so then Hill and Guyler said, you know what? Screw it. We're just going to make this work and we're going to pick the things that we liked from the previous stories and just like put them into this like just insane peyote fueled maybe not really peyote fueled but just this like sort of like crazy vision. <laughs> and they took parts of the ward and Fizana script and then they stripped out the monk stuff and then they put the 2E prison planet things in for the setting for Fury 161. Um, and then uh, Sigourney Weaver actually had her contract written to state that Hill and Giler would have creative control over her character because she was so upset with the way that Ripley was being written by that point. And then they found David Fincher, who was literally just a music video director at this point. He was like 27 or 26 even. Music
1: video director. He uh, uh, was a cameraman on Return of the Jedi. Very few people know that. Right,
0: right, right. Oh, wow. So he comes from
1: a pretty good pedigree of of filmmaking history.
0: Sure, sure, sure. But I I think in... Given, given the paradigm this is happening in, where it's like this, this sort of constant cyclical thing, like that was a pretty risky choice for them to choose somebody who had never directed a feature-length film to come into this basically nightmare cauldron of, mm-hmm. of Frankenstein screenplays and try to make a cohesive movie out of it. So then Fincher got the script, and Fincher yeah. started working on it, and he got Rex Pickett, who was an author, to uh, do some doctoring on the script and to work with Fincher. And then Pickett got fired... After that, and then Hill and Guiler said, "Fuck it, we're just going to finish this." And then, and then they and Fincher basically went and and fixed everything. And we get the script as we arrive tonight, looking at it, which is from the very beginning, very clearly not a traditional movie script. So yeah. the first thing you see it says Alien Three, and then it says by Walter Hill slash David Guiler, and then it says revised, and then it says. January sixteenth, nineteen ninety one. January seventeenth, nineteen ninety one. January twenty sixth, nineteen ninety one. January twenty eighth, nineteen ninety one. January thirty first, nineteen ninety one. February first, nineteen ninety one. February twentieth, nineteen ninety one. March fifth, nineteen ninety one. And April tenth, nineteen ninety one. So those are all the different script rewrites that are represented in this one crazy
1: draft. And, and it, yeah, yeah, it's 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 uh, you know, we might as well note too when even when they were filming the film the movie. They were getting script rewrites. Um, it was right. still happening. Or they were waiting on pages. Oh, no, this is being rewritten. So they'd have to wait. Production would have to halt. All sorts of things.
0: Right, right. And and you can see the sense of, like, the hurriedness of this whole thing. Because right away on the second page, they have a, a little well, a legend script. You know, so the thing that pops up in the bottom of the screen to tell you where you are. And it's the one that we all know where it says, you know, Fury 161. Um, and there are, t- <laughs> there are so many typos that you almost can't even read it. It says... Outer Veal, Mineral Ore <laughs> Refinery, Maximum Security Work Commeminal <laughs> Facility. Um, I mean, that, that is the state that this thing was in. And you just get yeah. the sense that they were like just huddled in a room, chain-smoking, <laughs> trying to figure yeah. out how to make this thing work. Um, and what's crazy is that you come out of this, which to me, as a creative person myself... Um, it would be the basically the ultimate nightmare. Like, this is like this this thing that has no steering vision left, and it's being driven purely by commercial needs at this point, and basically by this emergency of you have all of these people hired to do work on something that doesn't exist, and you have to just figure out how to make it exist so that you can shoot next week because the studio is <laughs> already booked, you know, for shooting it.
2: And they and come out of it, and they come of really up with really expensive sets too that they already built, and they're trying, yeah, to... huge stuff, <laughs> yeah.
0: And literally people actually building it as you're working on this thing. Mm-hmm. And then you come out of it with this movie that has stood, in my opinion, the test of time and actually gone on to prove itself to be a, a masterpiece. Mm-hmm. So that's kind of where we where we come into this discussion from.
1: And I think it's worth noting, too, that uh, Alien 3 was really a turning point for Fox. Um, Alien 3 was the first film where Fox like, okay, we need a new film. Uh, and we, you know, Aliens was... Is, was the most successful of the two films you know that had been released thus far. So Fox put it out that they needed a script and they needed a director. And Fox would continue to do this with Alien Resurrection with the AV, and with the AVP films until they let Ridley Scott come back and say, kind of do what you want to, and they kind of had a hands-off approach. And Ridley Scott assembled his team, um, got his writers, blah, 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 blah. Um, so it, that's kind of the history of the... I mean, these films have kind of gone through development hell over and over and over. I mean, Alien Resurrection was made, um, but again, they, you know, they went through a couple, actually three different directors, directors before they settled with Jean-Pierre Genet. I mean, so this is this is the history of Fox with this series, um, kind of not really knowing what to do, feeling that maybe there's potential there, but not knowing how to maximize that potential and really get a good product um, or a good piece of art. Um, so, Alien 3 is, I mean, it's not, it's not just the poster child for the Alien series. Alien 3 is used as the poster child for development hell in Hollywood. Like, this Mm -hmm. script, you know, that, the the script went through so many changes, so many directors, so many writers, that it's kind of a, a, a history lesson of how not to do things now. Oh, yeah. and, it.
0: You know what's funny is that like usually development hell is used in a in a way that's like a much it's much more relaxed in this like it's just sort of this purgatory right where like scripts are like you know like somebody will will buy the option for it and then they will kind of sit around and then they'll like approach people and then they'll be like nah, I don't I don't really want to do it if you can't get the right rating for it you know but yeah. to me this is like an example of an actual hell like this is <laughs> like <laughs> it was so intense and like so think about it like this so when they were filming in 1991 at Pinewood they did not have a script. They had already spent $7 million or something, um, and their cinematographer had dropped out because he had Parkinson's disease. So they, mm-hmm. they lost their cinematographer at the last moment, um, and, they, and they were like basically in production with uh, like nothing. And I, and I just think it's just, it's amazing that they even just, like, like, why were they even pushing ahead at all at that point? Like, take, take what you've spent, be like, all right, you know what, we're, gonna, we're 20th Century Fox, we have money, we're going to, like, absorb this loss, give it a year, figure out what the fuck's happening, and then we're going to, like, try it again. But they didn't do that,
1: you know? Well, and I think, again, it's, it's important to note that Vincent Ward was on board to direct and write for a while, and all of, a lot of those sets were, that were being built in Pinewood were based off his script. And that's the direction that they were going in, yeah. and then all of that changed. And then he was out. And then the right. script was out. Right. And then they had to be rewritten. And in fact, um, Alec Gillis and Tom Woodruff Jr. When we when I spoke with them, talked about like they had to kind of stop work and wait. It was just this waiting game. So they're waiting. Well, what direction we're going in? And then they had to kind of reuse those sets and repurpose some of those things for this new Guyler um, Walter Hill version. Um, so it, right. it, it continued to morph and morph and morph and morph and morph to, in, into this kind of Frankenstein monster, like you said.
0: And actually, a, l- a little bit of trivia on those ward sets. If, if you want to see them, it, they're a little bit hard to see within the Fury 161 set as we get it in the movie, although there's a lot of elements of it there. But the, the best place to see what it actually looked like is in the behind-the-scenes featurettes that, that Charles de La directed directed um, for the quadrilogy, Ridley Scott is sitting in front of like all of this like very clearly monastic set pieces that were that were just in the studio and he's yeah. just smoking his cigar and you look behind him and there's like there's like flying buttresses and shit. So that's how, if you want to see what those sets actually look like, just look at Ridley Scott. It's crazy.
1: Uh also just a a note of trivia. Ridley Scott was briefly attached to Direct Alien Three. Briefly. Um yeah. and he ended up showing up on set. Um while Fincher was directing, and they had a bit of a conversation, and uh, we'll talk about that eventually um, uh, down the road. Um, but again, just an example of where this film was going or had come from.
0: Mm-hmm. Um, and you and you look at like uh, also just like the you know the soundtrack, which we're going to hopefully get to talk quite a lot more about soon, um, was written also under such weird circumstances because Goldenthal. Wasn't really a film composer. He was really a, a contemporary classical music composer, um, and and yet he and Fincher really got along, and they spent a whole year working together, and it was recorded in L.A. during the riots in '92, and um, and so it was like causing actual disruptions, you know, with with their work plan, and it's like all of these things. It's just it's such a cauldron, like it's a you know like there's these times in history where things really kind of compact. I feel like we're in one right now, honestly. Um and I think the early 90s were like that for the for the world, you know. This is post Berlin Fall Berlin Wall coming down. It's a time of a lot of change, you know, desert storm, there's a lot of like shifting going on. Generation X and and, and you know, race relations kind of disintegrating or you know, coming to the forefront rather with like the, the the riots. And all those things are happening in history and then on top of that you have this really stressful film situation. And you can just feel it when you look at the pages in here, you can see like man, there was a lot of pressure on these people from a lot of angles I think and but sometimes pressure creates diamonds you know what I mean mm-hmm. so yeah. so uh, let's take a second and look at some of our favorite places in the script maybe uh, Jamie you want to start us off
1: yeah, um, well, the, my favorite place in the script tends to be my favorite place in the film. And it's what I believe is one of, is a very full circle moment for Ripley. And I don't want to talk about it too much in depth um, because I'm going to be covering it in our video episode, which will include our favorite moments, a video of our favorite moments with essentially a commentary on why it's our favorite moment. But um, the moment when Ripley discovers um, Bishop. What's left of Bishop in the EEV in the kind of the big garbage pile?
2: Hey, uh, Ripley. Hi, Bishop. How
1: are you feeling? My legs hurt. Listen, I'm sorry. It's okay. I'm just a glorified toaster. How are you? Oh, I like your New York. Um, and essentially, the the script version is almost word for word. You know, there's a few things, there's a few words here and there that are left out from the script version that that didn't make it into the film. But it's a really incredible moment of connection for Ripley and for um, for Bishop, and it mirrors also Ripley's interaction with. Um Ash in the original alien film in a very, very different way, but very, very similar um, and yeah it's just it's just really a wonderful moment and uh yeah, so that's what I have
2: yeah, I always really enjoyed uh i I thought i mean well first of all the the puppeteering job they did on it was just amazing. I remember seeing it for the first time um I think a d i was did that one right.
0: They did, yeah. yeah. They actually. There's some awesome stuff in Jamie's interview with them on that too.
2: Yeah. Um. And uh. And I was always uh. Um. You know, big fan of the Bishop character in Aliens, and I thought it was just a really poignant, poignant moment. Um. For uh. For Lance Henriksen, and you know, for the Bishop and Ripley dynamic, and you know, she had she would experienced such a horrible, you know, um you know uh basically got ptsd from not only the the alien in, in the first film but also from this you know basically evil um android and you know and she didn't trust bishop at all at the beginning of aliens but like Jamie said there's this kind of full circle moment and um and she kind of has made peace um with Bishop, and it just felt like a very human interaction, you know. Even though one one person, one part of that interaction was not human at all, but uh, but there was just uh, I just really uh, that scene already really um, captured and just just uh, engrossed me. Like I, I, that's the one I I think about a lot when I think about that film. Um, and it was just so so well done, well written, and uh, yeah.
0: And I think that the uh, the the pathos of seeing Bishop in that situation and his vulnerability, like when he talks about how he'll never be complete again, right? And and it's it's such a moment of mercy for her to unplug him like that. I just, I just think it's and and it's just it, it gives you an appreciation you know, to me. Like something about Alien Three that's always been really powerful is the sense of finality to it. Like the sense of like that there is a uh, that there is an end, you know, and that. Yeah. Like, you know, Ripley, who by this point has been alive for like 400 million years because she keeps going to hyperspace, that like that there is an ending for her, you know, yeah. and that there is an ending for Bishop, who, you know, like you look at his arc over the two movies that he was in, and he, and he really became uh, this like sort of martyr, you know, like saving Newt's life. And um and yeah, it just he's just such a legendary character. And then to see him in that situation where he's completely stripped of everything, he still has the dignity to say... Please end it. I'm done. I'm self-aware, even though I'm synthetic. Uh, you know, I may be synthetic, but I'm not stupid. Like, even though I'm synthetic, I I know that I have dignity, and that that dignity is has been robbed by unfortunate circumstances. And I am and I'm done. Like, you know, don't reboot me. Don't turn me back on again. I always thought that was amazing, and I agree. I, I think that some of ADI's best prosthetic work. And I'm trying to remember, Jamie. Correct me if I'm wrong. Um, in the interview, they talked a lot about. The how they got the skin tone, the skin to to function correctly on that.
1: Um, yeah, yeah, which I they was uh really cool. They, they had two separate puppets. One puppet. They had, essentially they they shot some scenes with Rip with with Sigourney Weaver on set in Pinewood, but they didn't get the kind of detail that they wanted to. So they wanted they went back and rebuilt. The animatronic in Los Angeles and for the very detailed moth movements and all of that amazing, beautiful work that we see, mm-hmm. that was an animatronic uh, filmed in Los Angeles. Right, right. Um, pretty amazing stuff. And again, I think the the amazing thing about that scene too is just knowing Rick Ripley's arc with her, just her, her trust with synthetic or mm-hmm. androids. Um, it took her a long time. I mean, barely, I mean, even at the end of Aliens, she felt a little bit better about Bishop but you could tell—you could still tell she was on the edge with him. She still wasn't sure. She, she, Sigourney Weaver played that so well. Mm-hmm. Yeah. She's like, oh, yeah. okay, you know, like, all right, like, just untrusting of him at every moment, mm-hmm. even though she had no reason to be. She still had, in, in her mind, she did. Yeah. And so, by the time we see her interact with him. Um, in alien. Three. He's like her family member. Right. You know? Right. Right.
0: And, and it's tested. Right. Like right before the end of Aliens, when she when he's not at the platform because he had to circle around, and it's that, one of the best moments in the whole trilogy for me when she's holding Newt and she says, you know, close your eyes, um, and <clears throat> I just think it's like it, it's and then he pulls through, you know. But as, as an audience, like like we are all. Uh, Conditioned by that point To be distrusting of androids Because of what happened with Ash And so like you know Like when you see the movie For the first time You're thinking Oh shit Like I was right Like he is evil He is this like Wayland bot When No he's not He's more than that He's a hero So not Mm -hmm. only does he pick them up But then he like As this, as this corpse, as this, not corpse, as this, um, you know, bifurcated, uh, thing with no legs manages to like save Newt from going through the pressure doors, you know, at the end of the movie. I mean, how more heroic can you be, you know, than that? Um, and so, yeah, you're right, Jamie, like the arc that he goes through, uh, is, is really powerful, especially with regards to, uh, to Ripley. Yeah. Um. Brian and I know you. You're, Brian, 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 I know you had a, a similar. You had another bishop Welcome scene that you to talk about. <laughs> yeah, Brian, Brish, I was thinking Bishop, Bishop. Um, you had Hey a, guys, had a, how's it going?
2: <laughs> <laughs> oh, hi. Uh, you had a
0: scene with Bishop yeah. you wanted to talk about too, right?
2: Um. Yeah, I mean the one at the end, um, right at the very end. It's uh, it's it's a long debate. It's uh. A debate of whether that is a another android or if that's a human. You have to trust me. Please trust me.
1: No. What's this gonna achieve? Stop! Stop! Jesus! Help me. What do you want me to do? It was a mistake! There was no need for any of it.
2: But yeah, the Bishop, and he's listed as Bishop 2 in the script. Um, and it's it's just this really, it's kind of this intense moment, and um, you you always, kind of, I, there's something, the way Lance Hendrickson plays that scene was just so effectively creepy, because you're not, mm. you're really not sure if, like, yeah, especially after, you know, that middle of the movie scene with uh, the Android, the other bishop, and you're like, should should I trust this guy? But there's something about him that just seems kind of off, and, you know, the way he kind of, like, looks, has his head pointed down, but looks up at Ripley, he's like, please trust me, you know, just... Uh... Yeah. <laughs> 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 that was a good impression. And um, I was just... Uh, just that whole moment... Um, and uh, you know but then you find out i mean he gets hit over the head by um i think i think aaron was the one that that cracked yeah. him over the head and his ear kind of rips off and it's sort of hanging there grotesquely um and and notice what color bl- the blood is yeah right. mm-hmm. it's red blood spilling out um and i think you know um there i think there was uh some confusion with the with the script, uh, you know, like, I don't think it was intentional to make it so ambiguous, you know, what, what uh, if he was human or not. Um, <laughs> I think it was, uh, you know, it was just one of those funny things about the script that it still ended up working, but um, I think originally they might have wanted him to be human, but, or maybe it was the other way around, but, um, you know, the way his ears just, I mean, he shows definite pain, but then he's just kind of like, You know, still talking to Ripley with this, you know, his ear just kind of hanging there and all this blood (laughs) spilling out of his head. And, um, you know, but, uh, but I just love, like, um, it was just so creepy the ways, like, you know, um, You must let me have it. You know, it's like... (laughs) It's a chance of a lifetime. (laughs) (laughs) No!
1: (laughs) No!
0: (laughs) (laughs) I feel like we're getting pretty good at this Lance (laughs) Hendricks. Did you know, Um, by the way, that he's like an incredibly gifted potter? Did you know this?
2: uh, I didn't know that. Mm -mm. Yeah,
0: like he makes pottery. And he's like extremely good at it. Like I've seen that. I think it might have been on Alien Collectors. But somebody's like friends with him in real life. And they've like commissioned pieces from him. Um, yeah. and he has like a company. So if, if you type
1: Lance Hendricks and pottery into Google, you see some crazy oh, shit. Nice. I want to buy some. some you, this yeah, forward.
2: right.
0: You know
1: what's interesting though? I I think about that scene though that you're talking about, Ryan. Mm-hmm. Um, is when he approaches her, he goes, "We wanted to show you a familiar face."
2: Right. Yeah. Um,
1: mm. How would they know that unless they're tracking his inner Bishop's interactions with Ripley and right. all of his information as he's processing is being sent through network. Back to Wait right.
2: on That's the only
1: way. It's the only way. Um, so I think that, that that scene is very insidious. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think, it because even Ripley, she's looking at him like, almost like, well, how do you know it's a friendly space? Right. How do you yeah. know? Like, how does it know? And then when she's talking with him in the infirmary, he's like, they, you know, they know everything. They've been yeah. tracking, you know, mm-hmm. like the company knows everything. They track everything. I think in their operatives, in their droids they send out, they know everything. Yeah, right. Um, and so to me, that scene is has a, a kind of a dual insidiousness.
0: Yeah, um, it does. It does.
1: Where they they're lying to her, but they also know things that they shouldn't know. And she, you can kind of see that discovery in her face, like "fuck you," like "no yeah. way," mm-hmm. like "how do you know Bishop is a familiar face to me? How do you know that?" They wouldn't know that. Um, it just kind of reveals on Dutani to be completely diabolical, and we suspected that we knew that, but really, it was kind of mm-hmm. the full flower of their of their intent, which is power and control.
2: Right, right, right. That's right. Another audio
1: drama.
0: <laughs> 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 I think it's worth if you while. if you look in the script, like they, they so the, when you first see him. Um, it says, "From the shadows steps Bishop Two. Our first yeah. sight, same as the droid. Ripley stares at him. She doesn't know what she's seeing. Um, and then, and then um, it's so funny reading the dialogue without Lance and Hendrickson, Lance Henriksen's yeah. voice saying because it's so distinctive. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I'm but but the Bishop droid. <laughs> I designed know, it. You want the help? <laughs> yeah. Um But but you know, but it, you there's no a... loud." <laughs> 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 there's no indication that it's uh, that it's not really an organic that it's not Michael Bishop, the guy that you know was the synthetics right. designer that made him. Um, but Ripley is very insistent in the script that he is a droid, and she says it more than she does in the movie. And and I, I don't maybe maybe I'm completely misremembering this, but there's a line in the script uh, on the uh, right before the end where he just screams, I am not a droid! Oh, yeah. <laughs> and there's so many exclamation points that whichever of them was typing it stopped pres- pressing shift, and it just became ones after it. So it's, I am not a droid, yeah. and there's nine Ds, and then four exclamation points, and then the number one, and then a period. <laughs> yeah. and, then, and then a capital I for some it reason. There's an I, yeah. Yeah, it's, like, it's, it's so chaotic. It's, there's a lot of emotion, I think, when they were writing that. But, um, yeah. I mean, I, I I've always assumed that he that he was human, that he was a you know that he was a, a an employee that designed that that was as he said the prototype for the for the android, and he was sent yeah. there insidiously to uh, to give her a friendly face and convince her to come back. But what's great, I feel like part of it is that Lance Lance Henriksen has this sort of inhuman quality to him, and I, I mean that in a really great way. Like, I think part of what makes him such a great screen presence, even in things like Pumpkinhead, you know, where it's a very mm-hmm. different kind of a role for him is that he's just so um, almost like Tilda Swinton, just like so difficult to place. Like when he, when he's talking, it's almost like ethereal. And I think right. that having him come back because it's that actor in that role introduces a whole nother shell of uncertainty to it because there is just mm-hmm. something different about him. There's something kind of like off in a really mysterious way. And um, he's very I think it's He's very not
2: to trust. You know, there's something about just the way he is and his in his in his movie roles and his and even, you know, with uh you know, some of his more television roles too. Um hmm. you know, Millennium. Yeah, yeah, you know, there's just something uh like you said, it's there's something just off about him. Like sometimes you feel like you can trust him, but then other times not sure. Just the way um he was just and I thought he was just a perfect um perfect uh actor for that role of bishop. He's actually you yeah. know, he was supposed to be the um, he was the original actor for uh for the terminator um he was uh, right. supposed to be the t eight hundred um which i thought man that would have been really interesting um to have him in that role but uh but he 's just so effective because of his his presence he just has his presence whenever he 's on screen um that uh it's just commanding it's unnerving it's mm-hmm. um and it 's so effective and i just uh and both that, you know, just that, that whole ending sequence um, with Ripley, that interaction was just—I uh, th- I thought he nailed it. So, yeah, totally, totally.
1: He, he has this way about him that you feel like he's disturbed, right? Like, there's this, there's <laughs> a, seriously, like he, the way that he performs, like if you've seen the show *Millennium*, um, or a lot of I his roles like we were discussing. Uh, there's just this undercurrent where he's a troubled man. He plays his roles like very troubled. Like, there's this. There's this dialogue that's happening right beneath him that we can't hear mm-hmm. that he's having. Yeah. So when he's talking to you, there's also another, there's also something else going on in his head, and it's, kind of it's like Willem Defoe a little bit too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, yeah, yeah. Well, Willem Dafoe seems uh, kind of, I don't know, <laughs> more visceral, but Lance Henriksen seems brooding, mm. like this dark brooding, this kind of cloud. Yeah, yeah. that's uh, what a, what a great impression. What a great yeah, He's an amazing
0: actor. Um, one last thing I want to point out about that scene. People might not realize this, but it's easy to tell when you're looking at the script because you can see when things were inserted um, physically. You can see when they were actually like taped onto the page. There's an insert right before the end um, that was done on February, 20, February 20th of 91. So that's pretty far into filming. That's a month after they were basically filming. Um, and they rewrote the last basically two pages. And, um, and part of that was that in an in earlier draft, Bishop was supposed to die when Aaron hits him. Uh-oh. So he was that was supposed to be his death. Yeah, um, and then but because it felt weird and like because it was sort of like there was like this threat that was all of a sudden taken out. You know, about seventeen seconds before she jumps mm-hmm. into, the, into the lead, um, it felt like the pacing was off. So that's why he survived. But that's also why in the final shooting script he's, like, really hideously maimed by this, like, wrench hit. Right. Um, Even though he's still alive. But because they chose to keep him alive, a lot of people thought, oh, he must be synthetic, because he just got hit with the force of, like, a fucking garbage compactor, (laughs) and his face got ripped open, and yet he's still, like, just, like, angry and clutching the gate, you know? Yeah. Um, And also because in the script, there's no moment where a sort of third party, like the sort of omniscient narrator going on in the script, says this is a synthetic... Being or this is not a synthetic being, they right. just say he looks like you know the prototype of of bishop yeah. blah 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 blah, so like there's there's room left for interpretation. I don't think it was intentional, yeah because i don't th- I don't think they had time to like you know bury Easter eggs in this fucking thing, I think they were just <laughs> trying to like go to sleep, they're just like we've been up for nine weeks, we need to finish this thing, yeah, um, and I think they're just kind of rushing to get it done, but part of what's so cool about Alien 3 is that there are because of of the conditions under which it was created there are these gaps in it that mm-hmm. somehow serve to make it in my opinion more beautiful and more everlasting and more evergreen for conversation because we can start inserting our own narratives into it and Michael Bishop yeah. has gone on to become his own whole character now you know yeah. and he's popped up in video games like he was in Colonial mm-hmm. Marines he's been in all sorts of stuff and yeah. um and it's great that he's gone on to like have his own you know, in spite of his tremendous injuries, you know, he's gone on to, yeah. <laughs> to have a great career. Yeah. I hope he got his hearing yeah. back.
2: <laughs> but, uh, um, I mean, yeah, it's like, uh, you know, another scene actually on the on the complete opposite end of the film was the very beginning. You got the, um, you know, the, the eggs in the Sulaco, um, you know, another mm. kind of ambiguous moment and... I think, I can't remember exactly from Lazarenka's interviews, but I th- I think they just kind of said, well, I don't know if they have actually reasoned it out. They're like, yeah, we just, you just you're just going to go, got to go with it. You know, it's like, we got, the, never we got the eggs in there. It it's like, oh, okay. But it's, but it still at least like opened a lot of discussion, like how that happened Did the Bishop Android actually put those eggs on the Sulaco, and I, you know, a lot of people would say no way Bishop would never have done that. Um, he's a good droid, but I don't know. I, you never know. It's just the kind of ambiguity that was more, um, you know, at the time they were writing the thing, it's just like, okay, whatever, just roll with it, because we need to get some facehuggers on this thing. Right. (laughs) Right. (laughs) Who cares how it happened? But uh, but it just opens up so much debate and discussion and adds to the film, I think. Um, It just, yeah, it's just really... This how this development hell turned into this just beautiful, amazing movie. It just blows my mind.
0: And and keep yeah. in mind that like the whole reason why that happened, why they're killed in the beginning, was totally because of Ward. Because Vincent Ward just yeah. thought that like they needed to die off, yeah. and so he kind of like got that pass. He like had to convince everybody to go along with it. And they were just like so preoccupied with other things that they were like, oh, okay, we'll figure it out later. And then <laughs> he wrote the whole script around that. And then they when as they were piecing together the Ward script and the Tui script with their own stuff to make the final shooting script, they're like oh, Jesus Christ, like, they're dead in the beginning. And this whole story hinges on that. So I guess we'll keep it, but we'll just sort of make it work. I don't know. We'll just shoot it. And even when you watch the Assembly Cut, which has significantly more footage of that mm-hmm. part, I mean, it's still, it's still the, it, it, there's a lot of inconsistencies. Right. And, and, the, uh, and in the script, you can see, in the beginning, I'll, you know, I'll actually, I'll, I'll read this quick. So it says, um, you know, facehugger, fin- finger, blah, 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 blah. Um, yeah. It says, uh, Newt's twisted, drowned face. She screams in slow motion underwater. A fetal queen emerges. Then Ripley's mm. floating face. The fetal queen forces her jaws open and disappears inside. I mean, there's like... Wow. It's a much more explicit right? Um, and much more, in my opinion, Vincent Ward-esque mm-hmm. treatment of what actually happened there. But it still doesn't make any fucking sense. I mean, it's it, it's not like, you know...
2: It's not like yeah, it, that, yeah.
0: like you know, ties the loop off. But it, yeah. that being said, I think it's it's just you know it's just interesting,
2: right? Yeah, absolutely. Um, but you know, I, what's I amazing? Oh, go ahead. Sorry. Go ahead. I was just gonna say, just the I think really when I when I kind of take a step back and look at this film, I, I just see just how much of a genius David Fincher was, yeah. even, even at a young age. As a child. Yeah, I know, like, ten, I mean, I, I feel so old, but he's like ten years younger than I was when he made this movie, and he's just like, he just knew how to take, I mean, he took all this, this mess, and I know, obviously for him, it was just a horrible experience, he still- I know, he hates know it so much. It. Yeah. <laughs> I know. You know, um, Jamie's mentioned that, you know, he's talked about comparing it to being like, raped or something like that, sexually <laughs> abused, and I just thought, I mean, it's like, okay, but obviously this guy is, got, he still has this, um, and he's worked with Fox on a couple of their movies since then, but he's obviously just hold holds this grudge that's maybe, I don't know, maybe it's kind of pushed him so, somewhat in his career, um, you know, and it's kind of inspired him to be, um, you know, the great director he is today, but, you know, you saw so much of that genius in that film, in Alien 3, and... Oh, yeah. he was able to pull everything together in these sets that weren't even built for the script that he had to shoot with <laughs> and like actors with those, no cinematographer like, yeah, no cinematographer <laughs> it's just like man Fincher I just have so much respect for him um, and I hope some I would love to interview him someday about it I don't think it will happen but I would love to talk to him about it someday um, yeah. and uh, but he just uh just an amazing filmmaker, um, even at that age. Just, yeah, just blows my mind. So, it's incredible. Yeah.
1: And what I love about Alien 3, if you we watch it, like, if we were to put it on right now, visually, it looks like it could have been made yesterday. It, it looks is, so good. It is timeless. It is gorgeous. It has no, like, oh, this looks kind of 90s. There's none of that. It is, it is much like Alien. Um, it is very, it's just there's no time frame you can't feel like oh yeah this was made in the 90s alien doesn't feel that way alien doesn't feel like feel, does not feel like it was made in the 70s it's just perfect right whereas aliens as amazing as it is it feels kind of 80s a little bit there's <laughs> just a little bit of an 80s vibe to it, <laughs> it has a little bit of um, rambo
0: going on <laughs> yeah, yeah
1: yeah which is i mean aliens of course we all know is amazing and we love it um but it, it is really a testament and it's also a testament that we hear about a lot of films all the time that are like, oh, they're having all this trouble and all this trouble and all this trouble, and then the film releases and we're like, yeah, we can tell. Like mm-hmm. the film that I just saw, which is uh, what's that piece of shit? Justice me? League. Um, <laughs> Justice League. Yes. Um, <laughs> Could even remember it. Uh, you know, we heard so much about Justice League. What was going on and there's rewrites, and then uh, Zack, Snyder Zack Snyder's had to step daughter, away from it, yeah. and then and then Joss Whedon came in. Oh, God uh, to who did rewrites and he did more he did he filmed more scenes and I
0: must be a chick I, thing
1: and I saw the film and I was like this is a fucking mess yeah. it's a mess and as much as I love like I love Henry Cavill I love Gal Gadot as as uh, Wonder Woman I love all of those actors I love the characters then in in and of themselves I love Affleck as Batman, mm-hmm. but the film was a mess, and it were there was not cohesive, there was no real story, and it was so easy, like, oh, Superman's back, let's kill whatever that <laughs> fucking thing was. Um, uh, at, at any rate, at any rate, uh, there's my little vent for Justice League. I really wanted to love that film so bad. Anyways, um, but it's it's a it's one of those films that you just hear about, and then you see it, and you're like. Yeah, that wasn't great, and we heard about it, that it wouldn't be great, and there it is on the screen, and it's right. not great. Most films end up that way. Yeah. Alien three somehow managed to be amazing, and and I've said this before in episodes past. A lot of the fans who didn't like or hated Alien three was didn't like it not because it wasn't a well made film, but because it killed characters they loved. It was like destroying their family. They went through so much at the end of Aliens, and they got through with Ripley, with Hicks, with Newt, and you know Bishop cut in yeah. half. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we we made it. We made it through. And <laughs> then half of Alien thing. Three was like, "Fuck that. That's not how it's going to be." And I think that that took a lot of courage mm-hmm. for Fox and for Fincher to say, "This is what we're doing. We're, we have a vision here." Mm-hmm. Um, Fincher not to get into Blade Runner 2049, but I do want to say Fincher did a lot of what Villeneuve did. He said, there are things that I love about the, the original film that I'm going to bring into this, but I have my own direction I'm going in. Right. And it was ballsy. And it didn't pay off really well with the fan base. With Villeneuve, it did. Um, we just, somehow it worked. Yeah. Um, but it, it's amazing to look at that film and to, to see... And but there are people who would agree, who would completely disagree with us. Who would yeah. be like, "That film is terrible," and I can tell you this, and this, and this, and this. Mm-hmm. So we're kind of in agreement. But even still, uh, even some of us, I think Patrick, you were a little bit like. It took you a while. I don't know if I, I can't remember if you told me if you didn't like it at, at a certain. Alien three. Maybe who? Was oh no! I fucking love Alien Three my whole life. Oh, it was wow. my, it was a friend of mine, um, and he was saying it took him a little bit to kind of. Oh, okay, okay. Now he loves it. I mean, he thinks it's amazing, but initially he didn't.
2: Right, um,
1: yeah. And I've seen that a lot in fandom where people were like, yeah, I hated that movie when it first came out. Now, I mean, Michael, who's one of our uh, roundtable members, he said similar things. He said, mm-hmm. yeah, kind of killed Ripley. It did all this stuff, but now I really like it for what it is and blah, 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 blah. Um, yeah. It's still very divisive despite the fact that it's creating a better legacy and people are looking back on it. With much more adoration than they did when they
0: it are, released. But, but also, I mean, like if you look on Rotten Tomatoes, it, so it's a forty six percent, and then the audience score is only forty seven percent. So it's it's still not like a popular film in 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 terms of critical consensus for for all sorts of various reasons. Yeah. But I think within fandom, for whatever reason, we I, there's this there's this great coalescing going around where I, th- I think people who have loved the movie, like us. For years and years are feeling like it's okay to admit that in in fandom because I remember having conversations with people five years ago where I would have avoided talking about Alien 3 because it would have just devolved into this like argument and I just didn't really want to get into it. And now yeah. if, if I bring up how great it is on, you know, for example, um, Building Better Worlds, like there will be plenty of people there to jump in and agree with me. And I won't just be totally outnumbered. So I, I feel like things are shifting in fandom, and I don't know if it's because necessarily we're seeing it in a different light, although maybe for some people that's the case, but I think it's more just that it's 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 become important on its own merits to us, not as just a part of the legacy of aliens, um, you know, and vis-a-vis the killing off of these characters in the beginning, but it's become yeah. like an important movie because it's a great movie, you know? And right. the choices that it forced us to make as fans about abandoning characters that we loved were hard decisions to were hard things to accept. But once you accept Mm it for what it is, and not hate it for what it's not, I think you can really um, kind of appreciate it. Um, But I, I agree, Jamie, with what you said about about the direction and the vision. I mean, it is it's just absolutely astonishing to me that the movie. Say what you will about it. I mean, at least it's a functioning film. That you ended up with a functional film coming out of this series of production mishaps and rewrites and firings and Parkinson's disease and all these crazy things. Like, the fact that, like, an actual movie came out of that is amazing. Yeah. But add to that the fact that it comes across to me and, I think, to you guys as well as a cohesive artistic statement mm-hmm. um, that comments on its time and feels like it's of of a place and of a moment in history and it feels like it has something urgent to say and, and it feels like it kind of comes back and, like, you know, we think about it a lot and kind of, like, resonates with us on a daily basis. The fact that yeah. a movie like mm-hmm. that came out of that crazy-ass formation um, really speaks to Fincher to me. Like, to have mm-hmm. somebody who, as basically a toddler, was able to corral all of these disparate forces and these different strong... I mean, Walter David Hill and Walter Giler are not, you know, wilting... What's it? Shrinking Violet, Wilting Daisy... Shrinking Violet, right? Shrinking, they're not shrinking Violets. Like, they are very hard-headed Hollywood bigwigs, you know? Like, Mm -hmm. they know what they want, and they're not afraid to fire people. And Fincher came in basically, you know, uh, uh, hanging from a rope. um, And and he managed to, under those circumstances, get his vision across cohesively. And to me, there's no more moment more emblematic of that then my favorite scene that I wanted to talk about, which uh, I think has a, a, become a very beloved scene in fandom, which is the cremation sequence. For
1: within each seed there is a promise of a flower. <laughs> and within each death, no matter how small, there's always a new life. A new beginning. Amen. Amen. Amen.
0: Which, to me, other than the first time they see the derelict um, in Alien, I think is just the greatest moment in the entire saga. And I say that because... It is a moment of, of, of absolute visual poetry and it's a moment of uh, script writing where you have this complete metaphor going on of birth and death and life and and you know and endings and beginnings and cyclic cyclicality and all these different things that Alien had been begging for to resolve. And they're all happening at the same time. And the fact that Fincher chose to shoot it with overlays, right, with those, like, semi-transparent, so, like, you see one scene of what's happening, and then mm-hmm. you see Ripley's eyes, you know, in the background, and then you see the bodies falling into the pit, and then you see the dog or the ox, you know, shaking, and the mm-hmm. alien, the are coming out. To me, it's, like, just this incredibly poetic moment. And I just wanted to kind of highlight a couple things about, you know, why I think it works so well, and then, you know, we can talk a little bit about it. Mm-hmm. Um, I think, for one thing, it 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 is just this complete moment of um, grace for Dylan who I think is just one of the greatest characters Alien has ever produced. I I think Mm. that, you know, as I think Dutton's performance is just indelible and I think the way that he's written is just unique and so beautiful and, and you can see how he came out of um, characters in the ward script who you know don't have very much um, you know breathing room on on those pages, and then he sort of like becomes no longer this ancillary character. He becomes like basically this like prophet for his brothers, you know. Mm-hmm. And the fact that he takes over from Andrews, who's doing his you know we commit this child and this man to our keeping, you know, <laughs> and then and then he basically just like pushes him over. And his first line is, "Why are the innocent punished? Why the sacrifice?" Why the pain? And that's exactly what we're thinking when we're watching that scene: is what What did Newt do? You know, like, wh- like, why is it that after all they lived through and all they fought through, they die in a fucking drowning accident in their cryotube? tube? You know, yeah. um, but it's true: the universe is just like that. The universe does not give a shit if you are a drug lord or if you are a child who was abandoned, um, You know, who, whose family was murdered in front of you. The universe doesn't give a shit. And fate happens and comes for everybody in the Alien Saga. And it's a beautiful moment of honesty where, you know, they, because it, I think without that scene, killing off those characters in the beginning would seem like a much less uh, seriously taken thing. Like, it was just like, okay, we're just going to get rid of them. But because of that moment, you're allowed to think like, wow, it really actually is tragic. And they're, they're yeah. taking a second and recognizing that. And you see Ripley, who is still has, like, the pressure contusion in her eye, and she's bleeding, you know. Mm-hmm. She still looks like shit. And you realize, like, she almost died as well. And she knows now that her time is... You know, she's already having nightmares about this gestation. Like, she, her time is coming. You know, and then Dylan says, there aren't any promises, nothing certain. Only some get called, some get saved. And you look at the script writing, which to this point... is a little bit all over the place. And then you see Dylan's voice just sort of coalesce into this really concrete thing. Mm
2: -hmm. And,
0: of course, having Dutton deliver that was just perfect. And then, so in the midst of all that, you see Ripley, and this is actually in the script, she holds on to Clemens because she's about to faint, and she grabs his arm. And so there's a moment in this whole birth-death thing going on where it's also love, where she's actually taking a second, and for the first time... Um, showing an outward sign of, like, um, depending on somebody to hold her up, because she's been the strong one this whole time. Through circumstances that are not, you know, of her doing, she just ends up always being the strongest person. And she's fainting, and she needs to be propped up for a second. And it's a moment of real humility for her character, I think, and real humanity. Um, And then they commit them to the void. And during that, of course, the chestburster explodes out. Mm -hmm. And and just that, that moment of beginnings and endings happening in the context of this moment of real transfiguration of ripley's character and let alone just the set which is just an an incredible set with this floating platform over the leadworks Mm -hmm. and you think like how far has this character of ripley come you know since being just this like 20 something officer on the Nostromo without a care in the world um and you know waiting to go back for her daughter's 11th birthday and then yeah. now she's like this this injured, hardened woman who has been through nightmares that we can't even fathom, and she's faced them and she's won, and she's beaten everything and somehow she's landed on a fucking prison rock in the middle of nowhere. Um, and she is weak at the knees because the the truest loves that she has known since leaving Earth, Newt and Hicks, um, have both been committed as as Dylan says, into the void. And that's what this universe is about, ultimately, in Alien. It's the void. It's the emptiness that we're all afraid of, that in Alien, when it works really well, is just around the corner, and it's just out of reach, and we know it's there, and we know it's listening, and it's waiting to take us.
1: Hmm. That's, I, I, that's a great uh, assessment. I, it's, fun, it's interesting hearing you talk. Uh, I have such a different outlook on that. Um, I, as someone who is part of the gener, Generation X as is Fincher, I felt like, in some ways, that scene for me was, was him, I don't know if he was intentionally, because Fincher has been on record saying, aliens, he didn't like it. Um, and in some ways, I read that scene of him saying, certainly, doom and gloom, but, yeah, they're dead. They're dead. And we're dropping him in a vault of, uh, of molten whatever. They're dead. They're gone. And it's almost like he's kind of grinding it like, yep, they're gone. They're gone. Yeah. Um, it, it's a very. It is a very, very powerful scene for mm. me. Um, but in in a different way, and I, I feel like it. It's also because of Fincher is who he is, and he's part of this generation, this Generation X, where they're we're kind of we we are the children of the baby boomers, and when we were coming of age, Nirvana was, um, you know, being blasted up, you know. Being blasted all over the radio, it was this real um, sense of emotional dystopia, mm-hmm. and I sense that in Alien Three. Alien Three is dystopia. It is that oh, sense yeah. of that. It's not what you think. Life wasn't this great. Growing up sucked. Um, it it, isn't, it was almost like a. It's or it's, it's an emotional response to the end of the eighties. Mm-hmm. To our childhood is over. Life isn't great we're strapped with debt um and we feel hopeless and a lot of the that kind of to use the 90s term the grunge music or the or the um what's the other term they use the uh alternative music which was the big term back then was this this kind of hopelessness Mm -hmm. um that you know like everything sucks and uh this is how the story is going to end, and Alien Three really reflects that in a beautiful way, in a, an intelligent way, and not a, yeah this is dumb, but you no know, let's have a conversation about this because sometimes stories don't end well, mm. and uh, that's why I love Alien Three. Um, even you know uh, you know my story for Alien Three is people have heard it just meeting Ripley at that time in my life. I was 16 years old. It was I was in shit, you know, and I was hearing. Um, Nirvana on the radio for the first time and it was moving me and I was hearing like U2's Octoon Baby in 92 and that record just like destroyed the world and it was amazing and it was arresting and it was again they're also products of that kind of Generation X that's coming up saying you know what Uh, we need the world is not this great place and it feels like it's all caving in on itself and uh, that's just one of the reasons why I love Venture. There's really no other film like Alien Three that really reflects emotionally the climate at the time. Mm. It does. It, it's the. It's the.
0: It, I mean, part of part of the grunge movement, you know, was this sort of fetishization fetishization of nihilism. That like that it was it was like it was okay to have an aesthetic that was sort of all about you know the establishment sucks and we've been you know like the materialism of the eighties sucks and like, you know, like who are we and what what are we here to do and like does it even fucking matter anymore? And you're totally right. That pervades Alien 3 in every single aspect. Although it was kind of accidental because a lot of the things about it that are that are so nihilistic were kind of chosen for Fincher before he even got to it by directors who were older than him. And then but something about the way that his experience as a Gen Xer interpreted those things, it really it really brings that out. But to me, the thing that saves that scene from being just a sort of typical grunge or, you know, alternative commentary on the, on, you know, our institutions and what is worth keeping and what's worth throwing away is, is specifically Dylan's poetry in the way that he basically, t- well, I guess, which I guess also sort of fits in with this whole grunge thing. Because he t- tells this establishment figure, right, the superintendent to like move out of the way. And then he says something honest and says something from his heart. Um and it's just yeah, it's just an it's just an amazing juxtaposition. And also Goldenthal's music there, I mean, it's just like just heartrending. I mean, it's just it's it's just a moment that I think is is one of the great moments in film. And um, and we get it, you know, out of this movie that should never have existed, and somehow clawed its way into uh, clawed its way out of the void and into theaters, and has gone on to live uh, this insane, beautiful life ever since.
1: Totally agreed. I I really, I feel much like, again, much like I think Alien 3 for me is the Blade Runner 2049 of the series. It's a film that shouldn't have been made. It's a film that shouldn't have been possible. Um, There's certainly some more uh, visual issues with the film in terms of some effects not really kind of coming out the best that 2049 doesn't deal with. But aside from that, everything is pitch perfect. Um, And it's, uh, it's, it's this brutal devastating world and even like you said Golenthal's music I mean it's this it's this terrible beautiful lullaby from beginning to end Mm -hmm. Um, and even though it's sung by a boys choir and you have these beautiful moments you know it's the end you know something's drawing near you know the story isn't going to end well and uh, and then that uh, on top of Ripley she's like she's not the Ripley we left in Aliens she's done She's just done. Mm-hmm. She can barely even muster enough like you can just tell it's all over her face. She's done. And uh that's heartbreaking. It's heartbreaking to see Ripley that way. Um where she had worked so hard in aliens to and fought so hard to lose everything again. Mm-hmm. Right. Everything. Right, right. And, and yet uh,
0: what's so I, amazing I, about Sigourney I, Weaver is that that doesn't come across as like depressing and boring for some reason. Like like there's something not about at all. watching her be sort of completely emptied out that uh is is really beautiful because then you see her more clearly for who she is as a human and not an archetype and not a hero you know and and I, I feel like I feel like her character kind of needed that like i I feel like if you're going to have a a third installment in a film franchise, you need to like take the opportunity to delve more deeply into the character at the heart of it. And Mm -hmm. the only way to really do that effectively, I think, because what are you going to do? Make her into this like superhero again? I mean, no, like she's not, she's not an actor. She's not, she's not like a, you know, like a, uh, you know, true lies kind of character. Like, like she, she's, she's just a, she's just a woman who is very capable under pressure who just wants to get home. You know, she just like can never get fucking home again. (laughs) And, um, and seeing her humanized like that. And especially just from a visual standpoint, this, the stripping of her hair like the, the stripping of her femininity, the stripping of part of her identity that um, makes her, and, and the fact that she's wearing just brown crap clothes um, that are too big for her because they're all, you know, from like the men's clothes on the, on the colony. Like she has just turned into like, an, for a moment, into just another face in the crowd. And you realize like, oh man, like she is a human. She is just that Ellen Ripley who was just trying to get home, you know, hundreds of years ago. And, um, and, then, and then to watch her regain her sense of self with the ultimate, ultimate act, which was to kill herself, to stop the queen. And it's like this moment, you, you know, like, to me, like, that somehow finds a way to top the emotional intensity of the power loader scene in Aliens. Because it's sort of like, you know, she's had, like, the ultimate duel already with the queen, Mm-hmm. Um, but the stakes were very different back then like she was an empowered strong healthy person with a lot of hope and who could do anything and she was you know galvanized by this 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 you know proto maternal instinct with Newt there and she was like fuck you bitch you know like I'm. well I yeah. shouldn't say that she get away from her um but she was like really you know a heroic fuck you
1: bitch <laughs> well she was also she was in really... blown whistleblower mode too like she was like fuck these things yeah fuck this company mm-hmm. um and then by Alien right. 3, the company had the upper hand. And what's interesting, too, is her character, she couldn't, you're right, she could not, she had to go the way she went in Alien 3. We how, Like, another film where she's doing the same thing she did in Aliens, I don't want to see that. I would have hated that, um, right? We all would have. Uh, I mean, and that was the risk. Uh, not that we're getting into this, that was the risk of Blomkamp doing another Alien film, as, as much as I was excited about that. That's a risk. You're going to bring her back, do the same things? Anyways, um, we needed Ripley to find a, an end, and she couldn't, like, save Newt all over again, because right. that's what it would have happened. Newt would have gotten into trouble again or something, and she would have been like, really, where was this going to go? Alien 3 was the, the sequel the series needed.
2: Mm-hmm. Right, right. Yeah, absolutely. And I think Sigourney herself, you know, she said I um in an interview said I always look at I've always looked as at Ripley as a as a loader and as being ultimately alone. And um you know, she's very much alone at the end of Alien and Aliens she has this the her and the audience have this hope that she has this kind of new family and then Alien Three right off the bat takes all that away and she's she's just she's just devastated I mean she's got she's got nothing she's no one her daughter her real daughter died um, and you know now newt's gone and hicks um, Bishop she had to you know disconnect um, you know it's just everything is taken from her and it just lends to the power of The film that she, in her in her last kind of this this depressed kind of saddened state, she still saves the day, and and not in the way that she did, like you guys said, like in Aliens. You know, wasn't a rehash. It was it was something a lot more I thought poignant and just more, um, uh, just kind of beautiful in the way that whole. Oh, totally beautiful. The way she falls into the the vat of. Molten lead, and um, you know, depending on what version you saw, either the alien comes out of her chest or it doesn't. It just, you know, but it's basically like she realizes, as Jamie said, the the company had the upper hand again. And right at the end, she says, "You get basically is the big middle finger to him," <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> so like, you know, um, no, I'm gonna win, and you know, you you've taken all this. Everything from me, but I'm gonna. In the end, I'm going to to save, save the humanity by sacri- sacrificing myself. Right, because um,
0: it's just like it's and, just like you said. I think Jamie said they took everything from her, mm-hmm. except for one thing, which was her agency. Right, mm-hmm. the one yeah. thing that they couldn't strip away from her was her ability to decide her fate. Right, and ultimately, that she has only one thing left that she can do, and that's kill herself. And in doing that. She also saves humanity, you know, as far as we know at the end of the movie. Right. And it's just, it's so poetic. And also, just thematically, going back to my scene from earlier, it's the same thing, right? It's a body falling into a vat of molten lead that is simultaneously an ending, right? It's the end of her character, mm-hmm. as we knew it. And it's also a beginning because it's the birth of the Queen alien and it's happening in this exact moment of transfiguration where you have a beginning and an ending wrapped up in each other. And it reminds me a lot of the end of Tristan and Isolde, the Wagner opera, where mm-hmm. um, she sings the Liebestod, which is the, the life-death song. And it's about, uh, it's the same thing, it's a sense of, of life and death happening, ex- exploding at the same moment, and how like that moment is is captured forever so indelibly. And, and I think that the way that it's shot, that last moment, where you see mm-hmm. You know, Fincher deliberately makes it scale to this like ridiculous amount. Like, you know, like the field the the vat that she's falling into is like the equivalent of like, you know, seven thousand football fields because it's like so blown right, up. Yeah. <laughs> but it's it's deliberate, it's a visual metaphor, right? It's this it's this idea of like being subsumed into the forever, into infinity, you know, and Goldenthal's music is just exploding and it's just oh, it's just so mm. beautiful. And and it is it's like the final the final—I mean—I just wish that things could have ended for Ripley there, and we didn't get resurrection because it's just the perfect send-off. And then you yeah. hear, of course, her transmission from the from the Narcissus, and it's just—it's just such a beautiful arc to yeah. the character, you know.
2: Yeah, it was... it's the, it's
1: my favorite ending of 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 all the Alien films. I mean, it's mm-hmm. just oh, me too. devastating, and it's so emotional and perfect. Yeah.
2: Yeah. Yeah. And that's just, actually just thinking about it makes me even more upset about Resurrection. That <laughs> <I> was just. <laughs> uh, it was so unnecessary and it just. Uh, yeah. So poorly done. And it, they should have just left it at Jeez. Alien 3. Um, really. And uh, because they. I thought, like you guys, that uh, it just perfectly ended um, her character arc there. And I just. I don't know. Alien 3 is just fan fiction to me, basically. It's just, uh, it shouldn't even be there. Or Alien Resurrection. <laughs> Resurrection. Not, not three, yeah. Sorry. <laughs> uh, Resurrection fan fiction, yeah. Alien 3 is amazing. So, yeah. Well,
0: you know, we're going to be, you know, exploring some aspects of Resurrection because there's there's definitely, we can't write off Every single aspect of it, but I, I totally agree with you on that. I, I feel mm-hmm. like um, from a, from especially from a Ripley standpoint, you know, Ripley is the, it's her and the Zeno for me. Like that's why I care about Alien at, at, in such a deep way. Is is because those are two very big things in, in my life, and I feel like for both of them, that was just like such a great way to end it. You know, it's just like have everything end in a in a pit of fucking molten lead. And um, with Ripley having final control and exercising her agency as as a human and as a hero mm-hmm. to end the alien, um, and of course that's not what happened. And that's okay because there's plenty of other things that are great that have happened since then. But in in my in my mind and and in my heart, if I ever have issues with prequels like I did with Prometheus or with other films in this in this like resurrection that have come out, um, I always know that we have that canonical trilogy. That can stand on its own, in, in at least you know, in, in my heart and in a lot of people's hearts, as its own sort of untouchable, perfect little vessel that tells yeah. the story of Ripley and the Alien,
1: you know, to be. Mm. Totally. Well, great conversation as you as always. Um, it's good to be back with you guys talking and uh, talking about the series that we love so much, and certainly Alien Three, which we all love, and um, we will have more conversations about Alien 3, about the score, which is probably one of the best scores I, I've ever heard that I own. Definitely. Uh, we are going to talk about Resurrection. Um, I think that uh, there's a lot there to discuss in terms of how the film was made, the risk that, the, that they took. Not so much maybe what we think about the film, because I think we all know what we think about the film. But there are plenty of pe- some people who really enjoy it. But we, re- we really want to talk about how it got made and... The, the process it went through in light of Alien 3. Right. Um, so stay tuned for that episode at some point. Again. So thanks, guys, for, uh, for talking as usual and thanks, everyone, for listening. Thanks, guys. For more on this and our other projects, please visit www.perfectorganism.com. If you'd like to join the conversation, find us on our closed Facebook group, Building Better Worlds. To support the show, please consider visiting www.perfectorganism.com forward slash support. We've got some great perks available. And as always, please consider rating, reviewing, and sharing the show. We can't tell you how much your support means to us, but we can hopefully show you by continuing to provide better, more ambitious, and more dynamic content for years to come.